But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. For he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Most of us have had the experience of dusting off the top of an old box and viewing pictures of ourselves from a decade or two ago and with, uh, you know, goofy hair and uh, old clothes. We amuse ourselves with our own, you know, self-deprecating photographic humor. Let me tell you, far worse than that would be having to listen to my very first sermon, and thankfully there is no record of this so that no further damage could be done. Most pastors would probably shudder to have to listen to their very first 
sermon that they preached. I was 15 years old, and it was before about 1,000 people. And as you can imagine, the nervousness was off the charts. I can't even imagine the pressure of having to preach the very first sermon in the church age. I mean, the Holy Spirit has dramatically been displayed and poured out upon 120 disciples. Thousands of people have come to hear the commotion of this fire, wind, and tongues. And you are given a task to speak to this large gathering of Jews. And they have a rich history, by the way, of of fiery prophets and astonishing leaders. And they have been looking for a Messiah to deliver them. But they summarily rejected the chosen one, the king of kings, the very son of God. And guess who gets to deliver this sermon in this epic-making moment? Not the person who has proven himself to be the most courageous. No, this person actually denied Jesus on three separate occasions. It was not the person with the calmest demeanor. No, this person actually whacked a guy's ear off with a sword when in a moment of rage, he unwittingly took on a group of religious leaders. That's why we've instituted here at CCC that no swords are allowed in elders or staff meetings. We have a tendency to, to think that the only miracle that day was in the tongues or the fire or the sound of the wind. Yet God had moved dramatically through a person who previously had demonstrated his fear, his impetuous nature that was often out of control. But on this day, Peter delivered an unmistakable, rousing call for repentance. And he pointed his finger at his audience for their part in the crucifixion of Christ. He put together a defense of the true Messiah with such logical precision that the clarity was like a shaft to their hearts. And he's not just give them philosophical speculations or rhetorical flourishes. But on this day, Peter, who probably spoke the common Aramaic language, allowed the Spirit of God to fill him. And he used his words to be so convicting that verse 37 says, 3,000 people were cut to the heart and they repented and came to faith in Christ. Let's dig a little deeper into this amazing and glorious sermon. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I first of all love the picture of 12 apostles standing together and then one of them to begin preaching. 
These men did not agree on everything. They had their moments when their pride got in the way, but when the work had to be done, they stood together and they set themselves aside. There is no enduring or effective ministry without a team supportive of one another. Peter clearly is addressing the Jews. In verse 14, he says, men of Judea. In verse 22, he calls his audience men of Israel. Verse 29, he calls them brothers as fellow Jews. And in verse 36, the house of Israel. And when he says, all who dwelt in Jerusalem, we know that this could certainly include Jews who were converted Gentiles. And as if to say, hey, I want you to listen up here. He says, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And he then uses what many think was a strike of humor. Now remember from last week, we talked about how when people spoke in tongues there, and earlier we we read this in Acts, many of the audience thought that they were drunk. Now the first hour of the Jews was considered to be at 6 a.m., Jews were not allowed to eat until the 10 a.m. hour. And they usually didn't have meat until supper, and it was with the meat that they waited for that moment in order to have wine with the meal. So it's like Peter is saying to them, hey, 9 a.m. is way too early for this bunch to get drunk. And Peter quickly moves on after defending the sobriety of the disciples. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. I love this, that in a day in which the Old Testament is denigrated even by pastors, Peter uses the Old Testament as a framework for this masterful sermon. I think all pastors should take their cue from Peter. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, is quoted to cite the Spirit coming upon them. Psalm 16 is later quoted to point to the resurrection, and then Psalm 110, the exaltation of Christ. Now, Joel was written 800 years, over 800 years before all of this took place in Acts. And he prophesied that God was going to pour out his spirit. And undoubtedly, almost every Jew to a person saw that the spirit outpouring was to Israel, and only to Israel, God's chosen people. And at the time that Joel wrote this, the kingdom was split. The nation of Israel was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And and Joel was speaking to Judah, and this was after locusts had invaded a parched land. And his prophecy was given originally to bring hope to God's people. But on this day of Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter is reaching back and he's showing the Jews that God was fulfilling that 800-year-old prophecy right before their eyes and pouring out his spirit. The 
term last days refers to the times during and after the coming of the Messiah. And understand that the Jews understood this differently than how we understand this now. They understood the Old Testament through their own aspirations for Israel. And so the coming of the Messiah was seen as as one event. They didn't see or understand that the Messiah was going to come the first time as a suffering servant on a cross and then come later to execute God's justice on the earth. They saw the Messiah as simply a deliverer of their troubles and right the wrongs that they had faced for centuries. So here in Acts 2, verses 16 and 17, Peter is giving immediacy to God's promise and letting them know that all flesh would benefit from this outpouring. Not just Jews, but Gentiles would also be benefactors of God's spirit. God will let all people share in his spirit, something that the Jewish mind had difficulty comprehending. And so he spells out sons, daughters, young and old men. In other words, this outpouring would be without distinction of sex or age. He mentions visions, and these were God's way of communicating a message to people who were usually awake, and then dreams to people who were asleep. In other words, God was intervening. God was conveying his truth. And remember, it's been 400 years since the Old Testament was written. 400 years since God had spoken to his people. And the people of God were were hungry for just a drop of revelation. Instead, God has begun pouring out like a tidal wave through his son in the church. In fact, we read in Hebrews 1, confirms the truth of this when it says, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe By the word of his power, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, for Peter, the universal pouring out of the Spirit on the church was a demonstration that this prophetic clock was continuing to tick. And perhaps the clearest indication of that outpouring that it was taking place was that it was not just with the religious elite, not with the educated, not with the blue bloods. It was not with just pastors or priests, but it was on all people. And the point of the Joel passage is that not just some, but all God's people will have the Spirit and will be equipped for every service with various gifts. In case they didn't get the point, Peter continued to read from Joel, even on every male servant and female servant in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Servant, 
slaves. Now, in the first century, most every slave was a Gentile. And so, Peter, as he is reading the application of this passage, it's got to be so far-fetched for the Jews to hear this. I mean, what's he saying? Not just slaves, but Gentile slaves? The lowest of the lows are going to be the recipients of God's outpouring? You've got to be kidding me. The Apostle Paul would later write, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Aren't we glad about that? It's not on your economic level. It's not on your past. I know many of us carry a lot of shame for what we've done in the past, but let me tell you, Jesus cleanses the conscience. He forgives us of sins, and, and that ground at the foot of the cross, that's even ground. We're all there. There's no higher or lower. There's no deserving parties. Such an announcement would be incredible to the Jews who thought God's spirit was only on a few select people. Yet before them were 120 men and women who were not prophets, who were not named Moses or David, and yet the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And my dear ones, I would suggest that our flesh is prone to a kind of selective service when it comes to the body of Christ. I mean, only those that we deem through our own selection are credible to be beneficiaries of God's spirit and grace. We're more comfortable with people of the same color, religious background, economic level. But such comfortableness is more than likely a prideful layer that has to be repented of so that the love of God can emanate from his spirit, the indwelling Christ. Can a person who doesn't have the right words to say, who's not educated, who has a sordid past, really be just as spirit-filled as one who knows the verbiage, who has the education, and who looks the part? Absolutely. You bet. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, used by God, is not something that's learned in a test tube. It is not something you do just in a sermon and take home and file away in the feel-good file. If need be, we have to change our style of relating so that people of color, people of different economic levels, different political persuasion, or religious background are welcomed within our circle of fellowship. And our life groups should reflect that. See, being filled with the Spirit is demonstrated by change behavior, and it embraces all recipients of grace. That's what was demonstrated here. In addition, the Spirit being poured out on all flesh I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. 
First, let's talk about the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. Such a phrase is associated with when God will judge the nations and all will have to stand before him. Christian and non-believer alike. It's a future event. It was great and magnificent because to the Jewish mind, that's when those who had, who had persecuted Israel would finally face justice. And indeed, that will take place. God will execute his justice. But it's also a day in which God will reward his faithful. Now, there are various ways to look at verses 19 and 20. But I would suggest that however we look at it, it shouldn't take away from the message that Peter was trying to give here, which was to shine a light upon Christ and to show the need for repentance right then and there. Wonders and signs are coupled together because God's miracles rarely stand by themselves, but they're usually used to communicate something, and that's what a sign is. It conveys something. It serves a message. And in this case, all these demonstrations signify something. Blood, fire, vapor of smoke, darkness, moon to blood, that signified a coming judgment. Now some see the blood, fire, smoke, and darkness These are terms of war, and they see this as the fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Others say, no, it's when Christ is going to come a second time, and all of humanity is going to be judged. Frankly, I don't think either meaning changes the passage. The main point is that judgment is coming for that audience and for those who reject Christ. Now, if you just take the destruction of Jerusalem, that was bad enough. I mean, Jesus talked about that in Luke 21, verses 20 and 24. He said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and not those who are out in the country, and let... um, Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled." When Passover arrived in 70 AD, there were some one million Jews gathered in Jerusalem. And for the next several months, the Jews experienced devastating hardship and bloodshed under the Roman general Titus as he was responding to a Jewish rebellion. And the Jews had refused several offers to give up, to surrender and compromise. But Titus built a siege wall around the entire city, and he cut off supply. And so with with provisions kept from the city, there was soon a great famine and 
unburied corpses were piling up in the houses and the streets. And by the way, you can read about this through the historian Josephus. Jews caught trying to flee the city or or even those that surrendered were crucified. No food. The Jews resorted to cannibalism, eating hay or even human excrement to survive. And after penetrating the walls around the city, the temple was totally burned to the ground on August 10th, 70 AD. And only smoldering rubble remained along with the western wall. And where the temple once stood, the ground was plowed over exactly as Jesus had said. The temple and the city were destroyed. Around one million Jews were killed. And another 100,000 were taken into captivity. And those that were captive were spread throughout the Roman Empire. And when, when the Romans were done with that city in 70 AD, not a single Jew was alive in the city. The Romans renamed the city. For many years, they would not allow a Jew to enter into it. And some 50 years later, under the Roman emperor Hadrian, he killed another million Jews. And they built a sanctuary to the Roman god Jupiter right on the spot of the Temple Mount. The prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled. And Peter, under control of the Holy Spirit, pointed to the Jews that judgment was coming. And he'll make the point later that the Messiah has already arrived. So verse 21 becomes paramount. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, after the bad news, there's the good news. Everything that followed in the sermon, Christ's death, his resurrection, his exaltation, pointed in the same direction to Jesus Christ. Whoever calls upon his name, whoever confesses him as Lord will be saved. Appropriately, Peter concluded his appeal with the same calling, verses 38 through 40. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Like blank spaces on a heavenly bank draft, signed by the Lord, he invites them to write their own name of faith. And if we do, that draft, without fail, will be honored by him, by the Lord God, and we will experience eternal life. Today is the 15th anniversary of 9-11, and we realize that we live in a world of violence. We live in a world with rapid social change, moral decay, environmental crises. 
and a seemingly unmanageable economic and pile of political problems. We have a sense of urgency that we, we have to have the hand of God upon our nation and in our personal lives. We are comforted as we read a passage like this that God is still in control, that he's still at work, even though it appears everything is out of control. Does he still intervene? Does he still do miracles? See, for me, the greatest miracle in Acts 2 is not the tongues, the wind, and the fire. In fact, the greatest miracle in the Bible is not the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. It's not even Jesus walking on water or healing a myriad of people. Now, the greatest miracle is in 1971, a 13-year-old sinner understood the gospel for the first time. And God gave him a new heart and a new destiny. And God turned that boy who once stuttered into a preacher of the gospel. And many of you have a similar story. Do you have a story of God pouring out his spirit on you? Transforming you from the inside out? You see, that's the greatest miracle. Here's the invitation. If you haven't experienced that, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray.